Well, I now invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 9. And we'll be looking at uh, verses 15 through 20 as we continue to look at this amazing conversion experience that Saul had when Christ appeared to him uh, on the road to Damascus. So I'll begin reading in Acts chapter 9. And I'll read uh, starting in verse 15. And these are the words that God spoke to Ananias. Ananias was one of the leading believers there in Damascus. And God is now giving to Ananias information about Saul and his ministry to Saul as well. So we'll uh, pick it up in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 15. And as I read this, again, I'm reading the inspired Word of God. So please give careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well my focus of attention again this morning is uh, primarily on verse 15. And we saw last week that God revealed to Ananias that he had chosen Saul Number one, for salvation. Number two, for service. And number three, for suffering. And last week we looked at the notion that God had chosen Saul from the time of his birth, indeed before the foundation of the world, to be uh, saved and be brought into fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to finish up the other two aspects of the election of Saul he was not only chosen for salvation, he was chosen to serve and also chosen to suffer. So as we look at verse 15 again, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So part of the function of God choosing Saul from before the foundation of the world to save him is also to put him into service. And we are told here that God tells Ananias that Saul will bear my name, Jesus says, before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Now this is an amazing transformation. Because before Saul wanted to bury the name of Jesus Christ, now he will carry the name of Jesus Christ throughout the Roman world. 
He is going to be transformed from a persecutor into a preacher. From an aggressor into an apostle. He'll be transformed from one who had a passion to tear down the church of Christ to one who has a passion to build up the church of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the scope of His ministry. He will bear My name, Jesus says, to the Gentiles, to kings, and the sons of Israel. Now the Gentiles, we know that that's put first because Paul, as opposed to Peter, is primarily the apostle to the Gentiles. So that's going to be the main scope of his ministry is reaching out to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. He'll also minister to kings. In other words, he will minister to politicians. Uh, We know King Agrippa. We know he'll uh, probably give an appeal before Caesar before he dies. So he will have an influence in bringing the gospel to the power mongers of the day. To the politicians, which just shows that the church must not be silent when it comes to politics. If the Word of God touches upon an issue, we have every right to proclaim it and to call our leaders even to repentance. And some of his uh, uh, ministry to some of the governors, Felix and Festus, are great examples of how the gospel is brought even to political leaders. But we also see that He will carry it to the sons of Israel. And that will always be Paul's pattern. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. Whenever he goes into the new city, he always goes to the synagogues first. But then once they reject it, then he turns to the Gentiles. So he's going to have a broad scope in his ministry. And it's interesting the qualifications for Saul's ministry. How God uniquely equipped this man by His providence to be able to minister in all three of these realms. First off, we we know that he was uh, uh, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Tarsus is up in modern day Turkey. And Saul was uh, born a Jew in Tarsus, but he was exposed to the Greek culture of Tarsus during his earliest years. He later would... uh, be brought and trained in Jerusalem, but he'll eventually go back to Tarsus and spend a number of years there, again uh, becoming acquainted with the Greek culture. Paul knew Greek well. He could interpret the gospel in terms that the Hellenistic world could understand. So this was a very, very important part of his upbringing and training to equip him to minister to Gentiles because he was born in Tarsus, a great Hellenistic uh, city at that time. And uh, even throughout Paul's writings, on a number of occasions, he will quote from Greek writers, not saying they're inspired or anything, usually to, to make a point, but he was a very educated man and was immersed in Greek culture and education so he was, he was fit and prepared by God's providence to minister to Greeks and Gentiles alike. But not only that, he was a Jew by birth. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And he received his name, Saul, no doubt from uh, the first king of Israel who was also from the tribe of Benjamin, and that's King Saul. And they probably named Saul out of... Uh, the memory of the first king of Israel. He turned out to be a very bad king. 
But at an early age, they moved from Tarsus down to Jerusalem, where he was trained in the Old Testament by the premier teacher, Rabbi Gamaliel. And Saul learned Hebrew. He became a Pharisee, devoted to the law of God. And this gave him access into the Jewish synagogues throughout the Roman Empire as well. Because this was a a noted disciple of Gamaliel. He was highly respected in the Jewish world. And Saul was also a Pharisee. So whenever he ended up in a new synagogue, they would be very interested in giving him the platform and letting him speak. So God providentially prepared him not only to to minister to the Greeks from his uh, upbringing in Tarsus, but also because he was a Jew of high station. But thirdly, he was also a Roman citizen which means he had all the rights and privileges of being a citizen of Rome and a citizen of the city of Tarsus. Now, Roman citizens normally had uh, were distinct by having at least moderate wealth. Uh, At some point, his Jewish family bought the rights to become a citizen of Rome. And one uh, ancient writer said that to buy Roman citizenship would cost you about 500 drachmae which was about a year and a half's wages. So you had to have a you have to be a family of wealth, at least moderate wealth to be able to buy uh, Roman citizenship. But this became very very helpful to the apostle Paul. Uh, three times in the book of Acts we'll find that he mentions that he is a citizen of Rome and he utilizes the rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen to his own advantage and for the advantage of the gospel. Uh, Part of the right of a Roman citizen is the right of protection from degrading forms of punishment like scourging and also the right to appeal to Caesar to hear you if you're ever brought up on charges. And he makes use of both of those rights as a Roman citizen. But the most important uh, way that God providentially prepared Saul for this uh, incredible worldwide ministry that he will have, is he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. We find that in verse 17. We find that when Ananias uh, speaks to Saul, he says in verse 17, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's the filling of the Holy Spirit that activates And gives him the power and the wisdom to use his Jewish upbringing. To use his his Greek training and and influences. And being immersed in the Greek culture. And also his Roman citizenship for the advantage of the gospel. So it's the filling of the Holy Spirit that empowers him to do all that he did. One commentator made the, the comment that no other man known to history from that time combined these qualities as did Paul of Tarsus. And one of the things we should keep in mind, of course, is that as God chose Saul for salvation and service and suffering, that uh, we are chosen really in the same way. Now, our service will be different. Our suffering will be different. But those who are chosen for salvation are also chosen for service and also for suffering. So that you and I this morning, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been chosen from before the foundation of the world not only to be saved, but to serve Jesus Christ. 
to carry the name of Jesus before others. It's not just something for the apostles. That's why God gave the church the Great Commission to go out and make disciples of all the nations. Now we'll do that differently according to our gifts and our abilities and our personalities, but we are all called not only to be saved, but to serve Jesus Christ. I've often been blessed by reading First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter addresses the believers he was writing to, and he says, you're a chosen race. You're chosen for salvation. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that's what we've been chosen to do, to serve. And I think what that does is it challenges us to reevaluate our life. Am I just living for me? Or am I living to serve my Savior? Because that's really a part of the whole salvation experience is that we are called to be saved, but we're also called to serve our Savior. And may God lead us in new ways to commit to that lifestyle of living. So Saul was chosen to be saved. Saul was chosen to serve, to be the apostle of the Gentiles, to carry Christ's name to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the sons of Israel. But he was also chosen to suffer. We read in verse 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Saul was chosen to carry Jesus' name and to carry Jesus' pain in a certain sense. And really had no choice about this. I mean, God didn't come to Saul and say, Saul, I tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. I will save you and put you into service, but you know what? You're also going to have to suffer. Now, are you in and out? Which do you choose? He didn't have a choice. God sovereignly imposed His will, His plan upon Saul, and that's just the way it was, period. So, And far from seeing this suffering as a curse, Paul will come to see it as one of the greatest privileges and blessings of his life. Now that reminds us again that there is a cost to discipleship. For all of us, there is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. When someone comes to faith in Christ, he doesn't come just to buy an expensive fire insurance policy just so he can escape hell. That's part of it. We come so we can be forgiven. We come so we can, we can have the hope of heaven. But uh, we're also saved that we might come to know Jesus Christ as the Good Shepherd, to follow Him as His sheep, to believe in Him, to trust in Him, to love Him, to follow Him, to obey Him. And with that, there will come a price. There will come a measure of suffering. Jesus told His disciples early on, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. And bearing our cross is a form of suffering that every child of God is called to. So that suffering really is a part of the Christian life. Later on, Paul himself will say in Acts 14, verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So expect it. 
you and I will have a measure of suffering. There's no way to avoid it. There's no way to get around it. It is ordained by God that His children will experience a measure of suffering. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in, his, uh, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, he said, I'm writing this so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you know yourselves that we have been destined for this. So Jesus Christ told him at the very outset, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul knew that his life, his calling, his election was for salvation, for service, and for suffering. And there's a sense in which you and I also enter into that in our walk with Jesus Christ as well. We all know Johnny Erickson Tata had the diving accident, was paralyzed from her neck down. Uh, She wrote this, Without a doubt, what helps us most in accepting and dealing with suffering is an adequate view of God, learning who He is and knowing He is in control. And I think that's one of the great encouragements that whenever God's people go through a time of suffering, we know that God is in control. We know that it's a part of His plan. We know that it's predestined. It's ordained for us that we go down that path. Now the realms of suffering for Saul was several. He certainly suffered when he came to faith in Christ in the realm of his family. Uh, Paul was not only a Pharisee, he was a son of Pharisees, plural, which meant that at least his grandfather and his father were also Pharisees. And Pharisees are renowned for their religious pride and their legalism, right? We know that from the New Testament. And that Saul was brought up in the family that was committed to the strictest sect of our religion, Paul would later describe it indicating that his family were dyed-in-the-wool Pharisees. I mean, they were the nitpicking, you know, try to push a camel through the eye of a needle type Pharisee and hypocrite. So when Saul was converted by the grace of God to Christ and then went to minister to Gentiles, the anathema people, according to Pharisees, you can only imagine how his family would have responded to him. Now, I don't know of any of his family that were saved, so I'm going to assume that they weren't, but I don't know that. This is an assumption. But his family, their pride, their pharisaical pride, their commitment to the law would have made them outraged when Saul became a follower of Jesus Christ. They would have viewed him as an apostate from Judaism, an enemy of God, a disgrace to the family. And most of his relatives would have become immediately hostile toward him. I remember back uh, when uh, the Lord converted me and I was baptized. There were several of us that were baptized on that particular Sunday. And one of them was a Jewish uh, young man who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. I remember him just telling me how his, his entire family had just rejected him. As if he wasn't even alive anymore. And you can only imagine the pain and the agony of Saul experiencing the rejection of his beloved parents, maybe brothers and sisters, if he had any, uh, his, his relatives. They would have all cursed his name 
And that, no doubt, was at least one, one aspect of his suffering. But also in, in regards to his religious standing and his career. Uh, he laid claim to all the blessings of being a Jew, a member of, of uh, the nation of Israel. He had all the, you know, all the, the, the trimmings, all the, the outward signs of being a member of Israel. Circumcised the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. He was a star pupil of Gamaliel, which would have no doubt earned him uh, the praise of others. And then his zeal in persecuting the church would have also earned him the applause and admiration not only of his superiors, but of his contemporaries. He was destined for greatness within the nation of Israel. He was probably destined to have a place on the Sanhedrin, the most powerful body in Israel because of his connection with Gamaliel, who was a member of the Sanhedrin. And all this came crashing down like the World Trade Towers on 9-11 when he converted to Jesus Christ. He lost his career. He lost his standing. He lost the admiration and the the praise of his fellow Jews because he was a traitor in their eyes. He had abandoned them and embraced what they thought was a false Messiah. So no doubt he suffered tremendously. He also suffered physically. And this is just through the persecution that he received. A physical affliction was a large part of his suffering as well. Uh, Probably the most familiar passage where Paul describes some of his sufferings is found in 2 Corinthians 11 when he said in verse 23, "...and far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes." I mean, five times! The 39 lashes. He says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep, floating out in the waters, out in the middle of a sea. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And that's just a part of it. And as he faithfully served Christ, we know that sometime in the mid-60s, he eventually was beheaded by Nero Caesar with a sword. He probably escaped crucifixion like Peter was crucified, so church tradition says. But since Saul was a, a Roman citizen, that would not have been allowed in his case. So he was beheaded with a sword probably. So that he lost it all when he came to faith in Christ. He lost his family. He lost his reputation. He lost his career. He lost his health. But how did he view all of that? This is the amazing thing. He writes in Philippians 3, that whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I might gain Christ. In other words, he lost everything the world had to give him, but he gained everything that Christ had to give him. And he said, it was worth it. It was worth it. But from the very outset, God revealed to him that I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, what are some of the reasons for this suffering that Saul became the apostle Paul had to endure? I've been reading in Ecclesiastes uh, this week, ran across Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14 which says, in the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. For God has made the one as well as the other. So in the day of adversity, we are to consider, why, Lord, is this happening? Now, we may not be able to answer that question, but we're to be reflective on it. And the author of Ecclesiastes believes that Really, suffering is more profitable than blessing because of it makes us consider the brevity of life. It makes us consider eternity. It has many sanctifying influences. But there are a few things that that uh, could have factored into why Paul had to suffer so much in his his walk with Christ. Some may say, "Well, it was suffering for his past sins. It's kind of a divine payback." And that really doesn't make any sense because Christ died on the cross for all of Saul's sins, all of his persecutions, all of the beatings he gave Christians. Christ has already died for all of that. So there's no issue of justice, kind of a, a social justice, kind of a payback for all the evil that he did to the church. Uh, that's not the reason. Um, we know that in general, God ordained suffering in, in our lives, in the lives of Saul and your life and my life, for sanctification reasons. Uh, some may be for God's discipline, not His punishment, but His discipline, His training in our life. Uh, this famous passage in Hebrews 12 describes this type of suffering. He says, For our fathers earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He, our Heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So holiness, the peaceful fruit of righteousness... That's why our Heavenly Father afflicts us at times with various forms of suffering. There are other forms of suffering besides discipline. For example, Psalm 119, verse 67, the the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. In other words, when everything was great in my life, I kind of forgot about God, and I just did my own thing. I lived for me. So before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. There's something about affliction that God uses in our life to get our attention, to convict us of our sin, and to bring us back into the narrow way. In other words, afflictions are designed sometimes to have a sanctifying effect 
to help us to deal with sin. It's like a sheepdog that nips at the heels of a straying sheep and bites at his heels and causes pain so the sheep will turn around and come back into the fold. And sometimes God sends afflictions into our life to help us to deal with a waywardness, a worldliness, too much of the flesh, and to realign ourselves back in line with with the Word of God. We also know that sometimes God will send sufferings and afflictions as preventive medicine. Like He did with uh, Paul with his thorn in the flesh. It helped to prevent pride and arrogance for all the revelations they received. Sometimes our sufferings are not to discipline us for sin, but to prevent us from falling into sin. And sometimes God will do that. So that ultimately, God will teach us through our trials, our problems, our struggles, something that is designed to improve us spiritually. To help wean us off of our self-sufficiency, our self-reliance, our self-independence, and make us realize how dependent we are on God. So that suffering times are a Christian's harvest time, said Thomas Brooks, one of the old Puritans. Others have said, like Robert Murray McShane, that some flowers must be broken or bruised before they emit any fragrance. I've had flowers in my backyard. You go up and you kind of sort of smell the fragrance, but you come up and you get real close or you even, you even crush some of it and then it releases so much more fragrance and the sweetness of its smell. And sometimes God does that with us. He will come and bruise us. He will come and break us because through that, we are humbled and drawn closer to Christ and the fragrance of grace can become more, more exhibited uh, within our life. That's why it says the darker the night, the brighter the stars. The hotter the fire, the purer the gold. That it takes a grindstone to sharpen the axe. It takes the anvil and the hammer and the fire to produce a tool useful for the Master. God uses our afflictions. He's using your trials today. He's using your, your tribulations your struggles, health-wise, financial-wise, whatever it may be, to work grace in your heart and life so that we can grow in sanctification and holiness with Him. John Blanchard said, the trials of life are meant to make us better, not make us bitter. And if your trials are making you bitter, then you need to realign with what God is working and see His goodness Because they're designed to make us better, not make us bitter. Reading a book on uh, Civil War uh, by the same author that wrote a a great history book on Oklahoma that I referred to a couple months ago. He wrote another great book called The War Between the States. And regardless of your view of the war and slavery is certainly uh, sin and sinful and, and was vile in many ways, One of my great heroes was Stonewall Jackson. He was a Confederate general. He was a godly man. There were Christians both in the north and also in the south, but he was particularly a very, very godly man. He was a devout Presbyterian deacon. And one night when he was on reconnaissance, he was, quote, accidentally shot three times by his own men. And that probably was not the cause of his death. He died a week later. But as his soldiers were carrying him, 
they tripped and dropped him while he was laid out on a stretcher and he fell on a sharp uh, uh, tree stump that probably punctured his lungs and he ended up probably dying from pneumonia. But he was in great pain, being shot three times, being dropped. And this is what he said to a pastor friend, Presbyterian pastor Tucker Lacey that came to visit him. Stonewall Jackson said, You see me severely wounded, but not depressed, not unhappy. I believe that it has been done according to God's holy will, and I acquiesce entirely in it. You may think it strange, but you never saw me more perfectly contented than I am today. For I am sure that my Heavenly Father designs this affliction for my good. I am perfectly satisfied that either in this life or in that which is to come, I shall discover that what is now regarded as a calamity is a blessing. And I use that quote to remind us that this is the attitude that we should have. We don't always get there. Sometimes we're slow in getting there. Sometimes we get halfway there. But this is the attitude that we ought to have if we believe that God is good and sovereign and that He works all things together for good in our life. It's not easy to suffer. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants afflictions. But we are destined for them in one way or another. And we must only learn to to trust in God's goodness that He's ultimately using it for our sanctification. There are other reasons for suffering in Saul's life as well as in ours and others just be conformed to, to Christ's image. We're told in Romans 8 verse 29 that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And since Christ's physical body had to suffer on the cross, His spiritual body has to go through that same phase, if you will. There's a suffering for no other reason just to help us to be identified with our Savior. Can't understand it? Can't figure it out. There's, there's no atoning merit to our suffering for sure. But there's a sense that when we suffer, we, we enter into what Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Not for salvation, but to being conformed to His image. That as He suffered for us, there's a sense in which we must be molded into that pattern. Our sufferings often are like applying the heat to soften the wax so it can better take the impression of the ring. And sometimes our sufferings and hardships and trials help mold us into imitating Christ and His patience as we cry out to God and entrust ourselves into the hands of our Creator who knows what's best. And it helps us to commit to obedience and and to grow in our love and so that our sufferings have a role in, in making us more like Jesus Christ. And finally, just to prepare us for glory. That sufferings help to loosen our grip on this world and to develop more joy in the world to come. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18, that I consider the sufferings of this present time are are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So some of our sufferings are just to make us realize that, you know, this this life here has pain in it. This life has, has grief in it. This life has suffering in it. 
And to the degree that we experience that, it, it should well up within us. Oh, but, but glory is coming. There is a time in my future when this body that may be afflicted by pain now will one day never experience pain again. These eyes which may now weep in tears over the sorrow and the grief that the world brings will one day, if anything, weep in joy in the presence of Christ. No more sorrow. No more tears. And there's a sense in which God sends us a measure of suffering just to make us realize there's more to life than this life. Don't set your hope in this life. Don't find your greatest joy in this life. Because it will ultimately disappoint us. Because sin and misery and suffering and death is about all this world can offer us. And so now we have the joy of walking in, the, in, in our salvation and the glory of what we have awaiting us. But the, the sufferings of this life are designed to loosen our grip to see the future as God has prepared it for us. One preacher said, tears are often the telescope by which men see far into heaven as we begin to long for it and look forward to that day. Jesus said that even your persecutions in this life will ultimately store up treasures in heaven, blessings in heaven. He said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So to whatever degree we suffer or persecuted because of our witness for Jesus Christ, that is storing up rewards by God's grace. We don't earn even those, but they're all by God's grace. But great will be your reward in heaven, Jesus says. So our sufferings are ordained by God. You will have your share. I will have my share. Yours will differ from mine. And from those next to you, even those in your family. But there is a purpose in every pain. And with the pain comes the promises of God. So that God promises, if you're here this morning and you're going through a time of affliction or a time of suffering, with the pain comes the promises. And God promises to you that He's with you every step of the way, even in the valley of the shadow of death. That He's in control of every detail of our suffering. That He's working it for our good and His glory for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That He will provide for all of our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's promised that He's always faithful. He will always uh, be faithful to you and me. That nothing will separate us from His love. And that although our future in this world may be quite uncertain, our eternal home is sure. Our Father who reigns above has given His Son to come and die and redeem us from our sins. He has given us His own beloved Son to come down to earth and to live as a sinless man and to offer Himself to pay the price and suffer the penalty that our sins deserve. So that ultimately He has a day of glory awaiting for us that no one can take from us. You know, the, the, the Allstate commercials, well, what's the question they always ask? Are you in good hands? And the child of God can say, we're in the best of hands. 
Because we're in the hands of Jesus Christ. And regardless of our sufferings and afflictions and pain, He's in control. He's working it all for the good. So therefore, in the midst of suffering, and Paul will learn this, and he will teach us much about this, remember patience. Remember patience. Because God's will is sovereign. There's a purpose. Remember hope. For God's will is good. And remember contentment. Because God's will is wise. And we're always in His hands. The greatest blessing of suffering is that in our suffering we can draw close to the Savior and know Him better. And that's no doubt one of the reasons He has ordained sufferings for all of us. Well, Ananias obeyed God. He departed in verse 17. He entered the house where Saul was. And what's the first words that came out of his mouth? Brother Saul. Can you believe that? Brother Saul. What an amazing way to address this violent aggressor, this persecutor of the church. And yet he came and called him Brother Saul. It took grace for Ananias to say that. He had to believe what God told him he was going to do with Saul. But Saul was a changed man from a feared adversary, from their worst enemy, from their nightmare. Now he's one of them. They had feared him as a sheep fears a wolf. But because of God's grace, this wolf has been turned into a fellow sheep in the same fold with them. And what a miraculous change God's grace brought about. This is grace greater than all of our sin. And can you imagine the impact that had on Saul? This man that he, he, he formerly would have loved to capture and torture and persecute and drag to Jerusalem to be put to death, now it's calling him Brother Saul? Can you imagine the, the, being overwhelmed with the love and the acceptance of someone that he had hated just a few days before? And yeah, this man shows him such open-armed open love and acceptance. What a powerful display of what Christian love should be all about. And then Paul goes out from there and of course, all the way down in verse 20, he begins to proclaim throughout Damascus that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, we've seen that God has ordained Saul not only to be saved, but to serve and to suffer. And our suffering is very much ordained for us as we are molded into the image of Christ because Christ came to suffer for us. And whenever we take communion, there's, there's basically three things we need to be mindful of when we take communion. The first is we are to remember the cross of Christ. That's front and center as the bread and the, and the wine remind us of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. They are symbols of that. And as we reflect on it, we're to think back upon just the, the price that Jesus paid in order to save us from our sins. 
But secondly, we are to be mindful that uh, as He came and suffered, so must we. It's a part of our Christian life. That there is a cost to discipleship. That as Christ bore His cross, He calls upon His disciples to take up our cross daily. And when we take communion, not only are we thankful as we look back to the cross and rejoice in the blood that was shed to pay the penalty for our sins, but we also renew our own commitment to Jesus Christ. That He went to the cross for us and He calls us to take up our cross daily and to follow Him. And it's an opportunity for us to consecrate afresh ourselves to live for this sinless Savior. As Paul would write later on in 1 Corinthians 5, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. For just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, probably the Lord's Supper in view, not with old leaven, leaven being a symbol for sin, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, when we remember the sinlessness of Christ, and we remember His sacrifice, we are to be exhorted in consecrating ourselves to live for Him who lived and died for us. To take up our cross. To get rid of the leaven within our own soul, the sin. And to live a holy life that's pleasing and honoring to Him. And that's the second thing. The third thing is we look to the future. And we look that one day He will come back again. And then we will enter into His presence forever and ever. So let us be mindful of those things. And if you're going through suffering now, you can rejoice that in God's providence and in the mystery of His will, He has ordained that you be conformed to His image. That your suffering is a way of imitating His suffering. No atoning value in ours, of course, but there's imitation value. So rejoice in it. Don't be shocked at it. But learn patience and trust and love for Christ. For His death saved us from our sins. We break the bread just to remind ourselves audibly of just the physical brutality of our Lord's death. The flogging. The pounding in of the nails. The breaking. The tearing of His flesh and sinew and and a muscle as He was crucified to bear the penalty for our sins. This is uh, the Lord's Supper that we're about to partake of. So we invite any and every true believer in Jesus Christ to examine your hearts and freely partake. This is for us to remember Christ and to spend time with Him in communion and prayer and praise and consecration. But if you're here this morning and you're not a believer we ask you to let the elements pass you by and reflect on the truth that one day Christ will come back and there will be a day of judgment. And you will be judged for your sin. And you will be justly condemned for your sin and cast to hell, Jesus said, if you do not repent and come to faith in Him. And may God make you realize the seriousness of your sin and grant you faith that you might come to Him today. If the ushers would please uh, come forward.
as we uh, pass the bread. Before we actually begin to pass it, I would like to pray. So let's bow our heads. Father, again, we thank You, Lord, that all of the suffering that You ordained for our lives is but a reflection, an imitation of the greatest suffering of all that You predestined and ordained as well before the foundation of the world. That Jesus Christ would come and that You would lay upon His sinless body and soul all of our sins, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of the curses, all of the judgment, all of the punishment. And He bore it all. He drank the cup of Your wrath down to the very dregs. He consumed it all that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. So as we partake of the bread, O Father, draw our our thoughts and our hearts to Christ in praise and glory and love as we are reminded of the price He paid to save us. We ask it in His name. Amen.